Chapter 6, Part 1 Lost in Transition, May to July 2003, of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Chapter 6 Lost in Transition, May to July 2003, page 133. Throughout the month of April, Coalition Forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC, units had struggled to address the gamut of operational and strategic challenges of a post-war Iraq. The declared transition from major combat operations to stability operations on May 1st foreshadowed several other transitions that ultimately proved disruptive to the Coalition's post-combat efforts. Over the course of the next 45 days, many key leaders and organizations central to the invasion left the country, as did a large number of troops. The remaining theater command was a sparsely staffed, under-resourced corps headquarters commanded by a general officer who had arrived in Iraq weeks before as a division commander. The senior diplomat who arrived to partner with him had extensive anti-terrorism and reconstruction experience, but none that was on the scale of Iraq's requirements. Additionally, the overarching assumption governing Phase 4 planning, that the military would be responsible for fighting the war and then quickly turn operations over to civilian control, evaporated as the civilian body formed for the job, the Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA, arrived in the country with far too little capacity to relieve the military of its stabilization tasks. Transitions in the upper echelons of the theater created a vacuum at the operational level of war that the U.S. Army, Marine, and British forces on the ground filled by adapting to the new requirements of their diverse and wide-ranging areas of operations. However, the coalition divisions and brigades soon found themselves dealing with disparate regions of a country whose society was imploding a process made far worse by disastrous coalition policies that collapsed the Iraqi state in May to June 2003 creating a dangerous power vacuum at all levels. Transitions at All Levels Page 133 Civilian Oversight From Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance to Coalition Provisional Authority in the days following Saddam Hussein's fall, CFLCC, as the nominal Combined Joint Task Force Iraq, or CJTFI, headquarters, made a concerted effort to consolidate reconstruction and governance activities to bolster the capability of the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, or ORHA, and accelerate the transition of Iraq from military to civilian control. ORHA's primary focus was securing the Iraqi ministries, defining security requirements, making emergency payments to the Iraqi military and civil servants, and developing the Iraqi police. CJTFI intended to continue building up ORHA's capability in accordance with its Eclipse II lines of operation. Viewed from Washington, however, ORHA appeared to be overwhelmed, lacking even basic communications and logistical infrastructure, which precluded even its movement into Iraq without assistance. Furthermore, ORHA was too small to foster Iraqi governance capacity at the ministerial level, having been developed on the assumption that Iraqi ministries would continue to function after a short hiatus. ORHA's mandate, too, was more as an emergency relief force than an organization tailored for long-term reconstruction and capacity building. Recognizing that U.S. leaders had probably underestimated the requirements of managing a post-war Iraq, 
National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice asked Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, Donald Rumsfeld whether he thought that the ORHA mission was failing. Rumsfeld agreed and informed Rice that he was working on some new ideas for the president. From the beginning of the Iraq campaign, then-President George W. Bush made it clear that he wanted the Department of Defense, or DOD, to lead the reconstruction effort until it transitioned back to Iraqi control. His intent was to maintain a single chain of command for post-war operations and keep the responsibility for interim Iraqi governance squarely on the shoulders of DOD, rather than the State Department. These principles led to the creation of the Office of the Coalition Provisional Authority, a more robust organization than ORHA, empowered to bypass the interagency processes and bureaucracy in Washington in order to make important policy decisions in the face of a dynamic situation. CPA would replace ORHA as the ground-level agency responsible for Iraq's reconstruction and for establishing a new Iraqi government to which the coalition could transfer control. The president and SECDEF selected Ambassador L. Paul Bremer to lead this new organization. Bremer had no Iraq or Middle East experience, but had plenty of interagency experience and had served in Afghanistan and East Africa. He had also served as the chairman of the National Commission on Terrorism in 1999 and on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Science and Technology for Countering Terrorism in 2002. After the president and SECDEF confirmed that he would indeed lead CPA in April 2003, Bremer spent two weeks assembling his team and attending briefings to prepare for the task ahead of him. The result of these hasty efforts, however, was a CPA that was anemically manned by civilians with little experience working with the military and ill-prepared for the challenges that lay ahead. Back in Baghdad, Lieutenant General retired J.M. Garner was unaware of the effort in Washington to bolster the CPA and was surprised when Rumsfeld notified him on April 24th that Bush planned to appoint a new presidential envoy to run the Iraq reconstruction effort just a week after Garner had arrived in Baghdad. Garner was not the only one surprised by Bremer's appointment. Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad had also been working as a special envoy and ambassador-at-large to the Iraqi opposition since 2002, and in April 2003, he was in Iraq working to link the Iraqi expatriate leaders with indigenous Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish leaders to form a new Iraqi government. When Garner informed Khalilzad that Bremer was assuming responsibility for governance in Iraq, Khalilzad expressed shock that he was being replaced and that no one in the administration had notified him. After threatening to resign, he was only convinced to remain in Baghdad temporarily at Garner's entreaty. On June 15th, ORHA was formally redesignated as CPA, and Bremer spread the remaining ORHA personnel across seven major directorates oil, civil affairs, economics, aid, operations, security affairs, and press and public affairs. His new organization was thinly manned by a conglomerate of civilians and military personnel who had volunteered for Iraq from Washington or had worked in ORHA. Although Bremer complained that many of the CPA personnel who volunteered lacked the requisite experience for the tasks they were assigned, few additional personnel were forthcoming from outside Iraq. It would be the military headquarters in Baghdad that would fully staff the CPA. Theater Command From CFLCC to Fifth Corps On May 1, 2003, CFLCC formally became dual-hatted as Combined Joint Task Force Iraq, CJTFI, which was numbered soon after as CJTF-7. 
The rebranding of CFLCC was another sign that, as far as most U.S. policymakers and military leaders outside Iraq were concerned, major combat operations were over. Generals David McKiernan and William Wallace, however, were still grappling with balancing the complexities of Iraq's security and reconstruction requirements with the number of forces they had been assigned. They were thus both surprised when the SecDef abruptly decided to send McKiernan's CFLCC and Wallace home and make the V Corps the new CJTF-7 headquarters under the command of newly minted three-star general Ricardo Sanchez. Rumsfeld made this decision in early May and originally instructed that Wallace should leave the country immediately, but given the uncertainty of the situation, McKiernan persuaded Rumsfeld to delay the change of command until June 15, 2003. From the time they were notified about the changing of the guard for CJTF-7, Wallace and McKiernan prepared to move their headquarters and transition responsibility for the mission. Wallace had already made plans to split the V Corps into a main and supporting headquarters, but had intended to put his main headquarters at Balad, 64 kilometers north of Baghdad, from which he believed he could exercise better control over the V Corps subordinate commands. That effort came to an abrupt halt with the impending plans for ORHA to leave Iraq, and Wallace decided instead to make Baghdad International Airport, or BIAP, the operational headquarters for V Corps as it became CJTF-7, assuming that the new civilian authority in CPA would make its headquarters in central Baghdad. Once on the ground, Bremer was quick to establish his authority and harness the military presence under his leadership. Upon his arrival in Iraq, he informed Wallace and then Sanchez that they worked for him and that he wanted them by his side in the CPA headquarters in central Baghdad for the reconstruction effort. It was then clear that Fifth Corps needed to split its headquarters to co-locate with CPA and simultaneously manage its operational and theater requirements. Sanchez left CJTF-7 operational headquarters at BIAP with 5th Corps Deputy Commander Major General Walter Wojciechowski in charge, while Sanchez himself and some key staff members moved to Baghdad's Green Zone with the CPA. From that point forward, the CJTF-7 commander's responsibilities became oriented on theater strategy and policy, while the remainder of the 5th Corps headquarters at BIAP ran combat operations, published orders, and built infrastructure. The May 18th CFLCC order setting out these command and control changes also established the mission and timelines for the transfer of responsibility for Iraq operations to V Corps, which became dual-hatted as CJTF-7 on June 15, 2003. The order further stated that 1st MEF was under the tactical control of CJTF-7, while CJTF-7 itself was under the operational control of U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM. CFLCC would revert to its pre-conflict designation as the 3rd U.S. Army, and its Iraq-related responsibilities would change to reconstituting forces, force sustainment, and redeployment operations from bases in Kuwait and Qatar. The change from CFLCC to CJTF-7 left the Iraq theater in the hands of a much smaller and less capable headquarters than the one that had led the invasion. The headquarters that had run the ground war and conducted the most in-depth planning and preparation for Phase 4 of any military or civilian agency suddenly found itself in Kuwait, while the new, smaller, and less experienced CJTF-7 found itself managing a two-core-sized force with few of the resources needed to prosecute stability operations at the strategic and operational level. Unlike CFLCC headquarters, which was at more than 100% strength with approximately 1,200 personnel and contained general officers in all its key staff positions, 
The V Corps headquarters was far smaller, with fewer than 300 personnel. The V Corps would also do all of this with a new commander. While General Tommy Franks had long planned to retire from CENTCOM in the summer of 2003, Wallace believed he would remain in command of V Corps until at least fall 2003, when his scheduled two years as a Corps commander were complete. However, Wallace's widely reported comments about the Fedayeen as an unplanned-for enemy during the invasion had irritated Rumsfeld, who had come to believe Wallace had displayed a lack of aggressiveness during and after the invasion. Although McKiernan had been able to dissuade Rumsfeld from relieving Wallace in the middle of the invasion, he was unable to convince the SecDef to maintain Wallace as the Fifth Corps commander for Phase 4. Sanchez, Wallace's replacement, was identified as the next Fifth Corps commander in April 2003, but he too had not expected the change of command to take place before the fall. He had arrived in Iraq shortly after the invasion in command of the 1st Armored Division, which was replacing the exhausted 3rd Infantry Division in Baghdad, and Sanchez had expected to remain in that more limited capacity for several months as a two-star general. Now, just days later, he learned he would be in command of the entire theater within a month. Still, Sanchez had participated in the planning for Iraq, and his division in particular was well briefed on operations in Baghdad. He was also optimistic that his joint and interagency experience from the United States Southern Command, or SOUTHCOM, and more recently his experience leading a multinational force in Kosovo, had prepared him to manage another joint interagency and multinational organization in Iraq. His experience working in a joint environment placed him high in Rumsfeld's favor, suggesting that he possessed enough credibility with the SECDEF to ensure he received the support he needed. Therefore, Sanchez took command of CJTF-7 on June 15th, expecting a challenging, but not impossible, mission. Important Individual Transitions In addition to the major organizational transitions that took place in Iraq in the summer of 2003, many of the key personnel and much of the military's resident Iraq expertise moved out of the theater. At the end of April 2003, Franks informed Rumsfeld of his intent to retire that summer. Feeling that his mission was complete now that the Iraqi regime had been toppled, Franks had no desire to follow through with what he anticipated would be a messy and lengthy post-war period, and the CENTCOM commander had even begun plans to take leave in the Caribbean in May before Rumsfeld intervened to deny the leave request. Franks proposed that his deputy, Lieutenant General John Abizade, replace him as the CENTCOM commander, and Rumsfeld agreed. From that point onward, Franks largely disengaged from leading efforts in Iraq, leaving Abizade with the difficult task of running CENTCOM without actually being its commander. The Pentagon announced at the end of May that Abizade would be promoted to four-star general and succeed Franks on July 7, 2003. Abizade's selection as CENTCOM commander aligned well with his professional and personal background. An Olmsted scholar and Arabist of Lebanese descent, Abizade had considerable experience with the Middle East and Arab culture. His efforts to focus CENTCOM and the Joint Staff on Phase 4 operations in the fall and winter of 2002, combined with the engagements he conducted with Iraq's neighbors before the invasion, gave him ample relevant regional experience. In fact, The original plan for the post-invasion command in Iraq had Abizade commanding a CENTCOM forward command post in Baghdad, and he later was slated as the commander for the projected Combined Joint Task Force Iraq. 
As the CENTCOM commander, however, Abizaid needed to consider many other countries in addition to Iraq and the Middle East, as well as the broader global war on terrorism. Across Iraq, routine army institutional transitions were also taking place. Sanchez's replacement at the 1st Armored Division, Brigadier General Martin E. Dempsey, did not arrive to take over command of the division until September, so Brigadier General Fred Doug Robinson, Sanchez's deputy, assumed command in the interim. Just as Robinson took command, all of the division's brigade commanders who had recently embarked on Phase 4 operations in Baghdad were replaced as well, leaving few leaders with Iraq experience in charge and putting many new personalities together within that division alone. Elsewhere, several other brigade and battalion commanders changed command as part of the Army's standard two-year command cycle. Substantial numbers of Army field-grade officers and senior non-commissioned officers who had participated in the Iraq planning and combat operations also left for new assignments or the next level of professional military education. The final transition that indirectly affected Iraq was General Eric Shinseki's retirement in the midsummer. On June 11, 2003, Shinseki sent Rumsfeld a lengthy end-of-tour memorandum, articulating how he believed that many of his intentions and actions as the chief of staff of the army had been misconstrued by the office of the SECDEF. The memorandum also reinforced the emphasis on army transformation and asked the secretary to maintain momentum in that direction. After Shinseki retired on July 31st, his vice chief, General John M. Jack Keane, became the acting chief of staff of the army charged with both leading army transformation and supporting two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. WMD Mission From 75th Exploitation Task Force to Iraq Survey Group In addition to securing conventional weapons caches, one of CFLCC's key tasks was to secure, investigate, and exploit weapons of mass destruction, or WMD, sites, a mission assigned to the 75th Field Artillery Brigade. It quickly emerged that the scale of the problem was more than the 75th Field Artillery Brigade could handle. The sensitive site exploitation mission had been secondary to the invasion itself during CENTCOM's planning, and assigning the 75th Field Artillery Brigade had almost been an afterthought. The 75th Field Artillery Brigade's leadership recognized early on that they were not adequately equipped or operationally embedded in the plan. The security vacuum after the invasion hampered the unit in deploying its teams and accessing the suspected sites without security support. It also had no access to Iraqi government documents about the WMD program. Nor did the 75th Field Artillery Brigade follow the prioritized list of suspected WMD sites it had received. Instead, the 75th Field Artillery Brigade's inspection teams tended to move quickly around the country responding to any and all reports of sites that might be associated with WMD. The 75th Field Artillery Brigade's failure to uncover large WMD stockpiles in its first month in Iraq was a serious matter for policymakers in Washington. At the recommendation of Under-SecDef for Intelligence Stephen A. Cambone and Defense Intelligence Agency or DIA Director Vice Admiral Lowell E. Jacoby, Rumsfeld moved to supplant the 75th Field Artillery Brigade with a much larger Iraq Survey Group, or ISG. The ISG mission was threefold to locate U.S. Navy pilot Captain Michael Scott Spiker shot down over Iraq in 1991, to gather evidence of the regime's ties to terrorism and war crimes, and, most importantly, to locate Saddam's WMDs and the associated programs that supposedly produced them.
With several hundred people drawn from across the intelligence community, the ISG was led by Major General Keith W. Dayton, DIA's Director of Operations, with David A. K. serving as Chief Scientist. Although the shorthanded 75th Exploitation Task Force expected to be integrated into the ISG, that never happened. On June 22nd, the ISG formally took charge of the WMD mission, and the 75th Field Artillery Brigade redeployed in frustration, bringing an unceremonious end to the unit's abortive mission to verify the Casas belly of the Iraq invasion. The Disintegration of the Iraqi State and Society Page 140 the coalition military had invaded Iraq with the intent of toppling the Iraq regime, but had assumed that beyond the regime, the state administrative apparatus would remain largely intact. The invading U.S. forces had also expected to have assistance from the Iraqi military to maintain a secure environment and enable a peaceful handover to a transitional Iraqi government. Once on the ground, however, U.S. officials made a series of decisions that dramatically expanded the invasion's impact on the Iraqi state and society precipitating a governance vacuum at all levels in Iraq. The Disbanding of the Army and Outlawing of the Ba'ath Party The unexpected pairing of the CJTF-7 headquarters and the new CPA in May 2003 was rocked by immediate and sharp differences of opinion about the nature of their relationship. Although Bremer ostensibly worked for the SECDEF, his approach in practice resembled that of a presidential envoy consulting directly with the White House rather than with DOD or the rest of the interagency. The CPA and Bremer were under the impression that they would command the military forces by issuing military orders designed to fulfill CPA's objectives. Meanwhile, CJTF-7, under Sanchez, believed that the relationship was one in which military leaders would set their own priorities and direct their own operations to support CPA's objectives. For his part, Abizaid later noted that the formal relationship between CENTCOM and CPA was never made clear to him. The most difficult policies that CJTF-7 had to operationalize in the first months of CPA's tenure were those dealing with debothification, the dissolution of the Iraqi army, and the control of weapons. The National Security Council, or NSC, had been working on a debothification plan for Iraq within the U.S. interagency for months, and CENTCOM and CFLCC both had plans to recall Iraqi civil servants and select members of the military to run the government and secure the country. Both the NSC and CENTCOM agreed that the Ba'ath Party itself should be outlawed, but, as Rice put it, quote, the question was to what degree were you going to allow government employees and military people to retain their positions, end quote. The general thought among senior U.S. officials was that members of the top two levels of the Ba'ath Party, that constituted only a small fraction of the Iraqi population, should be prohibited from holding office with some exceptions, but that all other Ba'ath Party members could denounce the party and remain in position through a separate process. CENTCOM, for its part, planned to disband select segments of the Iraqi military that were loyal to Saddam, but intended to retain at least the regular army to assist with reconstruction. The NSC and ORHA plan for the Iraqi military called for the retention of about five divisions of the Iraqi regular army, with a select portion of field-grade officers removed by a relatively forgiving debothification policy. Like CENTCOM's plans, the interagency proposal was to use the retrained Iraqi military for reconstruction and stabilization tasks, keeping Iraqis who were used to wielding weapons gainfully employed. 
Bremer, however, arrived in Baghdad with very different guidance and intentions on debathification. On May 9th, his last days spent at the Pentagon before going to Baghdad, Bremer received his orders in a memorandum from Rumsfeld which included instructions to, quote, actively oppose, end quote, the legacy organizations loyal to Saddam, including the Ba'ath Party and regime security organizations. That afternoon, Bremer also paid a visit to Undersecdef Douglas Fyth, who showed him a draft order for the debathification of Iraqi society that would marginalize the top four levels of the Ba'ath Party, thereby expanding the prohibition to tens of thousands of additional Ba'athists. According to Bremer, he understood that the order as written had been reviewed and approved by the White House, DOD, and Department of State. Although Fyth planned to have Garner issue the order immediately, Bremer argued that the order was so important that it should wait until he arrived in Baghdad to issue it himself, a move that Bremer believed would establish his authority as he took up his duties in Iraq. Bremer's thoughts on how to manage the former regime security institutions were shaped by conversations that his senior advisor for defense and security affairs, Walter B. Slocum, had held in May with Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld, who judged that most Iraqis feared the return of Saddam Hussein's repressive security institutions and that the Iraqi army had melted away of its own accord after the regime collapsed. Additionally, all of these institutions were predominantly Sunni and not representative of the Iraqi population, or so the DoD leaders believed. On May 19th, Bremer sent a memorandum to Rumsfeld recommending that all of these institutions, including the Iraqi army, be formally dissolved, to which the secretary agreed. Once in Baghdad, Bremer discussed debathification and the status of the Iraqi military with Abizaid, indicating to the presumptive CENTCOM commander that debathification efforts focusing on only the top two levels of the Ba'ath Party were not stringent enough, and that he intended to disband the Iraqi army formally. Abizaid thought Bremer's plans extreme. Quote, I think the model that was being used in Washington was the World War II model of denazification, Abizaid recalled later. Saddam was Hitler, the Republican Guards the SS, and the Ba'ath Party the Nazi Party. This notion of this great crusade against evil had no bearing in reality to what was on the ground and the historical context of Middle Eastern politics, and Iraq politics in particular. End quote. Abizaid protested to Franks that Bremer's proposals went far too deep into Iraqi society and were bound to cause problems, but his protests had no effect on the policy. In retrospect, it appears the more moderate debathification proposals previously approved by the president and the executive steering group in Washington before the invasion either were not transmitted to Bremer or were overridden by those he received via the office of the SECDEF as he moved forward with the debathification order he had first viewed with Fyth and Rumsfeld. On May 16, 2003, Bremer issued CPA Order 1, Debathification of Iraqi Society, which banned Iraqis who had been in the upper four levels of the Ba'ath Party, rather than just the top two levels, from holding government office, effectively putting between 30,000 and 50,000 Iraqis out of work, including senior civil servants, military leaders, and university professors. While Iraqis and the coalition military were still processing the implications of the debathification order, Bremer issued CPA Order 2, the dissolution of entities, one week later on May 23, 2003, and just four days after his memo to Rumsfeld declaring his intention to take this step. 
CPA Order 2 dissolved most of Iraq's security and intelligence apparatus, including the Ministry of Defense, Iraqi Intelligence Service, special security organizations, and paramilitary forces. It also disbanded all branches of the Iraqi military in their entirety, negating in a stroke the NSC plan for the new Iraqi army and CENTCOM and CFLCC plans to recall it. CPA Order 2 also suspended pay for members of those entities, and because many security officials were also in the top four levels of the Ba'ath Party, it essentially prohibited them from public employment in the new Iraq. The extensive de-Ba'athification policy had both immediate and far-reaching consequences. Because most senior civil servants and university professors across Iraq had been required to be level four or higher in the Ba'ath Party, Many key players in the Iraqi ministries and education systems were either forced from their positions or opted to leave them in the absence of other instructions. This severely disrupted the reconstruction plans ORHA and CJTF-7 had been making. In the coalition, units discovered they now had to screen their scarce interpreters for Ba'ath Party membership and potentially arrest or dismiss them. The feedback that CPA and the coalition received about the policy ranged from, quote, Relief that they were purging Ba'ath Party members to outrage they were going overboard in their pursuit of former Ba'ath Party members. End quote. The order to dissolve the Iraqi military generated a more inflammatory response. Although the Republican Guard was loyal to Saddam, the Iraqi regular army had been more distant from the regime and contained members from all of Iraq's ethno religious communities. Its dissolution created a large population of seasoned military men who suddenly had no livelihood. The order to dissolve the Iraqi military resulted in increased demonstrations and demands for jobs, pay, and the immediate reconstitution of the army. Some of these protests disintegrated into violent confrontations with the coalition, resulting on occasion in the deaths of coalition troops. These two CPA policies in rapid succession sent shockwaves throughout the country. Concerned about the backlash to his debathification memo, Bremer added an addendum to CPA Order 1 on June 3rd. Instead of dismissing all senior Ba'ath Party members outright, the addendum set up an investigatory process and an Iraqi-led debathification council that would gradually assume full control of the process. Based on interviews, public records, and testimony, this committee would determine the nature of citizens' Ba'ath Party membership, assist with appeals, and either grant or deny requests for exceptions to the CPA policy. Exceptions included provisions for those, quote, judged to be indispensable to achieving important coalition interests, end quote. For many senior U.S. military leaders, the disbanding of the Iraqi army was an unwelcome step taken without their input. Abizaid later recalled being pulled from a planning meeting in Baghdad to be told that Bremer had issued the order without consulting him, even though Abizaid and other U.S. commanders had already formulated plans that counted on the use of the Iraqi army as auxiliary manpower. In an even more jarring moment, on the day CPA Order 2 was announced, Brigadier General Mark P. Hurtling, assistant commander of the 1st Armored Division, was in the middle of addressing a gathering of 600 senior Iraqi officers in Baghdad to solicit their participation in the reconstruction of the Iraqi army when, as he recalled it, quote, My aide came in to tell me that CPA had just made the announcement disbanding the army. The Iraqi generals got the word too, a few minutes later, through their channels. End quote. The Debate Over Disbanding the Iraqi Army 
To a large extent, the military men in Baghdad were seeing the result of conflicting policy positions in Washington. Senior U.S. policymakers had differed in their views on how deeply the Iraqi Ba'athist state should be dismantled. On the one hand were senior officials who believed much of the Iraqi state and security structure would need to be retained in order for the coalition to manage the post-regime change turbulence successfully. On the other hand, as Abizaid observed, were senior officials who feared that keeping the Ba'athist structure in place would mean Iraq would not transition to democracy, but would revert to, quote, Saddamism without Saddam, end quote. They also feared that the Kurdish and Shia opposition parties, such as Supreme Council for Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI, and the Badr Corps might become hostile to the coalition occupation if the Ba'ath and Iraqi security apparatus were not fully disempowered. Speaking to journalists in 2005, Bremer postulated that the disbanding of the Iraqi army had been, quote, probably the most important decision I made, and it had the effect of avoiding a civil war in Iraq, end quote, by reassuring the Kurds in particular that the United States was intent on making serious changes in Iraq. In later years, Bremer and Walter Slocum held fast to the explanation that CPA Order 2 had merely codified the reality that the Iraqi army had disbanded itself by dissolving during the course of the invasion. By April 15th, quote, there simply was no organized unit, end quote, in the Iraqi army, Slocum told reporters in Baghdad in 2003. However, this was an explanation with which Garner and others did not agree. On April 15th, the date he said the Iraqi army had dissolved itself, Slocum was still in Washington and did not arrive in Iraq until weeks later. On the ground in Baghdad in April, Garner and Colonel Paul Hughes, an army officer who worked for Slocum, were receiving dozens of contacts with groups of Iraqi officers, such as those Hurtling was meeting. These officers wished to arrange for the recall of tens of thousands of their soldiers to duty or to reorganize the Iraqi forces with the coalition's assistance. Hughes had even formulated a plan to give Iraqi officers an emergency payment of $20 each to buy essentials for their families. Other officers had drawn up plans to use Iraqi troops to guard the Iranian border. Slocum and Bremer's promulgation of CPA Order 2 caught Garner, Hughes, and other military leaders by surprise and cut short their negotiations with the Iraqi military. Bremer's sweeping actions in Baghdad also appeared to catch the president and his advisors by surprise. Speaking to army historians in 2015, Bush recalled that Bremer had informed him of the decision to disband the Iraqi army rather than seeking guidance or saying, Mr. President, here are your choices. The decision had effectively countermanded Bush's pre-invasion decision to retain and use the Iraqi army. Echoing Bremer and Slocum's rationale, however, Bush recalled, quote, I always felt that to the extent we could use the Iraqi army as a stabilizing force, it would be a plus. But the problem is that when we got there, there was no Iraqi army left. They just evaporated. There was no structure. I remember Bremer telling me that we disbanded the army, but there was no army to begin with. End quote. Bremer's choices conflicted with the president's original guidance, Bush told army historians, but as commander-in-chief, he believed it important to trust the judgment of the U.S. officials on the ground as they were closer to the dynamic situation and whom Bush wished to empower rather than micromanage from Washington. Nevertheless, Rice concluded later that Bremer had not perceived the, quote, 
fine line between empowerment to act in a kind of tactical sense and knowing when an issue is really a strategic issue, end quote, requiring input from the president, SecDef, and national security advisor. Bremer would spend months attempting to walk this fine line, but the president subsequently reined in some of Bremer's authority. He and Rice would have direct contact with Bremer at least every few days and require him to consult more closely on strategic policy issues. Reconstructing an Iraqi Army and Disarming an Armed Society The fallout from disbanding the Iraqi military, along with the clear necessity to secure Iraq, lent more urgency to the project to build a new Iraqi security force. Hoping to stymie the civil unrest generated by CPA Order 2, Bremer announced that an organization was already established to build the new Iraqi army. This effort, led by Slocum, actually began before the CPA order was issued. On May 9th, Major General Paul D. Eaton, then commander of the U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia, was notified by U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or TRADOC, that he had been chosen to lead the new Coalition Military Assistance Training Team, or CMAT. CMAT was composed of a skeleton staff of military personnel and contracted military and police trainers who were expected to configure 27 Iraqi motorized infantry battalions over two years, an army that would be too small to wage wars of aggression and, interestingly, incapable of defending the country from outside invasion. Arriving in Iraq on June 13th, Eaton found his efforts to create a new Iraqi army immediately hindered by two factors. Although Wallace and Sanchez agreed that constructing a new Iraqi army should be a military operation, Bremer did not. Based on Bremer's guidance, CMAT would work directly for the CPA, outside of the CJTF-7 chain of command and operations. Second, CMAT itself was an economy of force mission. Its trainers were drawn from the 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division, other individual augmentees from the U.S. Army, and contractors, with the latter initially making up most of CMAT's personnel. With no concrete relationship with the main force on the ground and with few resources of its own, Eaton's CMAT was unlikely to resolve the immediate security problems generated by the dissolution of the Iraqi military. Thus, clarification of the debathification policy and Eaton's new mission could do little to improve matters for coalition ground forces in the short term. CJTF-7 leaders now had a delicate situation on their hands. They could not flagrantly ignore Bremer's orders, but implementing them would further disrupt a precarious security situation. CJTF-7 and its divisions needed to balance their operational requirements subtly against CPA policy directives, but on a quiet, ad hoc basis. Some units began to hold meetings with local leaders and tribal sheikhs to find ways to reinstate professors or gainfully employ Baathist civil servants and former military members. Other units began locally hiring former Iraqi soldiers to protect government facilities and key infrastructure sites. The 101st Airborne Division in Mosul found a legal loophole that allowed it to bring some university faculty and other teachers back into their respective schools. Still, other units tacitly allowed key players and interpreters to continue working while seeking similar mechanisms to restore or replace their jobs. The unrest spawned by CPA Orders 1 and 2 was exacerbated by yet another far-reaching directive, CPA Order 3, Weapons Control 
which forbade Iraqis who were not police from possessing or carrying firearms, grenades, rocket-propelled grenades, and other munitions. Implementing this order was fraught with difficulty. Most Iraqis had weapons in their homes, and in rural areas, weapons were both part of the culture and essential to the Iraqi lifestyle. Many Iraqis viewed personal weapons as necessary for their protection in the security vacuum following the invasion, and most of the Kurdish and Shia political militias carried weapons as a matter of course. The sheer volume of weapons and munitions available in the open and in unsecured military facilities rendered enforcing the order impossible. Once again, CJTF-7 and its subordinate units had to develop mechanisms to cope with an order they could not fully enforce. CJTF-7 first established a weapons amnesty program in June, which allowed Iraqis to turn in weapons and other munitions without penalty. When the weapons amnesty program expired on June 14th, measures to enforce the policy had still not been published, and much confusion about the requirements remained. CJTF-7 units then began buyback programs in which Iraqis who turned in weapons received cash payments for those weapons, but compliance with the weapons policy was not widespread, signifying an unwillingness of the Iraqi populace to trust the coalition to provide basic security. The Marines also conducted their own weapons collection program, but had little to show for the significant effort it required. Marginalization of Iraq's Tribes the fourth CPA pronouncement that had the potential to deepen Iraq's instability concerned the country's tribes, toward whom CPA's attitude tended to be dismissive. Believing they were shaping a new, modern Iraq, Bremer and many of the CPA officials who accompanied him initially saw little place for, quote, backward, end quote, tribal culture, a perspective Bremer would later change. By mid-May, the experiences of CJTF-7's divisions confirmed that Iraq's tribal infrastructure was intertwined closely with the country's politics and governance, and that engagement with tribal sheikhs was crucial to identifying and resolving issues for Iraqis in both rural and urban areas. Consequently, many units decided tacitly to overlook CPA's official stance toward Iraq's tribes for the time being. Military units at all levels began a concerted effort to reach out to the tribal sheikhs to identify reconstruction requirements and set up interim governance structures. However, because of their lack of knowledge about Iraq's tribal rivalries, coalition forces found themselves immersed in and often manipulated by long-standing tribal disputes over resources and power. End of Chapter 6, Part 1 Lost in Transition May to July 2003. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.